So you have these memorable interactions with patients or their family members that you take with you and you remember them and they feed you as these rewarding interactions or these, um, I like to call them these sacred moments where there's this really beautiful connection and you're able to really give a patient the care that they want. But with COVID, it was the sheer volume. I still had those moments each day, but I was having these really intense interactions six and seven times a day. So those things that used to feed me, all of a sudden were like, there's too many. Now they're not feeding me anymore. It's too many. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of our new podcast, Living Breathing Medicine, where two family practice doctors have conversations with other healthcare providers about the humanity in medicine. Here we uncover stories of compassion and explore what good medicine really is at its core. I'm Dr. Cecily Havert, and with my colleague, Dr. Natasha Beauvais, we are happy to bring you Living Breathing Medicine. On today's episode, we had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Kristen Forner, Dr. Forner is the Palliative Care Program Director at MedStar's Southern Maryland Hospital, as well as Chair of their Bioethics Committee. Prior to this, Dr. Forner trained and worked in such cities as Chicago, San Diego, Boston, Dayton, Ohio, and Asheville, North Carolina. During our conversation with Dr. Forner, we discussed what it felt like to take care of COVID patients as a palliative care doctor, the trauma that the COVID pandemic has had on healthcare providers, including Dr. Forner's realization about her own anxiety and its impact on somatic symptoms, and also the impacts that generational and racial trauma have had on the practice of medicine. Dr. Forner started her new job at MedStar in March of 2020, only a week before the COVID pandemic hit the United States, making for an unexpected transition into a very busy service of sick and dying patients. Please note that this conversation with Dr. Forner took place in the summer of 2021. This was a wonderfully moving conversation, and we can't wait to get to Dr. Forner's story. We bring this to you next on Living, Breathing Medicine. Dr. Forner, we're just um, so glad that, uh, that you could join us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you most enjoy about what you do in your practice now and the people that you meet within it? Sure. So my hospital is located just south of Washington, D.C., um, probably about 20 minutes. We serve a population that has a lot of chronic illness. The hospital itself is within a couple of miles of three long-term care facilities, um, one of which is actually a ventilator facility. So we have patients that are actually sent to that facility from North Carolina, other states that don't have vent facilities. Um, so it's not uncommon for us to be speaking with family members who are you know, a state away. We have an 18-bed ICU. And our team, our palliative care team, has partnered with the intensive care unit, um, as well as with many of our hospitalists, to help care for the sickest of the patients they are caring for. Oftentimes, that means we are meeting with patients and family members to give regular medical updates, to give space to ask questions and get those questions answered. It means that we're doing a lot of symptom management for their chronic illnesses, pain, anxiety, constipation, nausea, vomiting, you name it. Often as well, it means that we are trying to navigate 
the medical system in terms of making complicated medical decisions. And sometimes that requires figuring out a way through complicated family dynamics at the same time. And so kind of working within those areas to provide the very best care that we can for our patients, depending on who they are and where they are in the course of their illness. And so most of my days look like joining my social worker or my chaplain or talking through cases with my nurse practitioner colleague or my other physician colleague about what makes sense to do this day for this patient. And we are all kind of in it together, along with the primary providers, whether it be the hospitalists or the intensivists. So you work mostly in an inpatient setting? That's right. So we're an inpatient consult service. Got it. And is it just the one location that you work at, or do you go to different different facilities? It's the one location. Um, however, because MedStar is a system um, that has nine hospitals, kind of throughout Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and then south of the city, we, on weekends, our system-wide palliative care team is helping to care for all the hospitals. So there are members of all of the nine uh, hospitals teams that work each weekend to provide consults for all of the hospitals remotely. Is there any group aspect of that as colleagues? Is there any structured way that you would communicate, you know, like one hour a month, all 12 of you or however many there might be? or Yes. So we have work groups for all of the different disciplines. So within the system, we have several nurse practitioners, multiple social workers, multiple chaplains, many physicians, and then also multiple uh, pharmacists. And so each work group meets separately each month, and there's a lead for each of those work groups. So whatever the discipline is from all of those hospitals meets on that particular day. And they're discussing things that are important to them, ways in which they're trying to improve the care that we provide specific to their discipline. And then, the, so the physicians have one as well. And then we also have a work group for the system where all of the site leaders meet as well as the discipline leaders. That's a separate meeting that occurs every month as well. So there's actually a, a lot of, system-wide collaboration, which was enormously helpful during COVID, especially as someone, you know, I started my job just two weeks before we saw our first patient who had COVID-19. Yeah, tell us about that. You, you just happened to be starting a brand new job right before the pandemic. Totally not ideal, yeah. but definitely, definitely worked out. Provided kind of an enormous amount of meaning and purpose to our move here. Uh, very unexpected, but kind of all of a sudden, like, oh, wow, this population is being hit really, really hard. And I just kind of happen to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But that collaboration with our system was enormously helpful to me just to better understand the health system itself, the area, our patient population. And they were able to say, so when I started, it was just me and my nurse practitioner colleague, just the two of us. And we, our hospital was seeing a lot of patients with COVID. And so the system, they were superb. And so we had pharmacists that would hang out with us for a month at a time. We had a social worker that was sent remote to work with us uh, almost full-time during COVID. Uh, we had a chaplaincy intern that was sent as well as a social work intern. I mean, they were just, they would just send us people to help to make sure that 
at every step of the way, we're at least attempting to provide whole person care and not just medical care, Mm -hmm. knowing that really good palliative care requires more than one discipline. Yeah. You probably didn't anticipate working as hard as you did right after you started. I mean, did you have any time off? I mean, once things really started getting going? So I started, I was hired to work part-time and felt like that was going to be doable um, because it's a relatively small community hospital. And I thought that it was just me and a nurse practitioner. I thought that, that that would be doable. And then my husband and my children got sent home the same weekend, uh, same Friday. And it was like, okay, well, if you guys are at home, I probably need to go to work. (laughs) And so I talked to the hospital and they were like, you know, to the health system, they're like, great, you want to work more? Like we can make that happen. They were wonderful about it. And so allowed that kind of flexibility. So then all of a sudden we were working every day and it was, I think it was really needed. I would have really worried about my nurse practitioner colleague had she been trying to do this all by herself. Yeah. What did you do with your family in the beginning? When you were in the ICU in the first week of the first patient of COVID. I was. So when I first started, I kind of had a three-armed approach Um, because, you know, it's one of those things where you're watching the slow tidal wave across the world and you're like, it's coming our way. I better think strategically about how two people are going to manage this tidal wave um, while you know still trying to maintain some sort of like we're going to go home at night and we're going to go to sleep in our own beds and we're going to show up the next day and not be like crazy people. Mm-hmm. So my three-pronged approach involved going down to the ICU and introducing myself to the intensivist there and specifically to the ICU director and just saying, look, I have an idea of how I think I can be helpful, but we under- understanding that this is still really an unknown. And so if you're willing to be a little bit flexible and let me help, like, let me figure out how I can be most helpful to you, then I'll, I will figure it out. And she was like, whatever you want to do, <laughs> like, we're good. And I was like, okay, great. Then I went to the hospitalists um, and a colleague of mine at Georgetown, uh, one of the pharmacists had written up this beautiful um, symptom management document for shortness of breath and cough. So I took that with me to the head of the hospitalist and I was like, can you get this to all your people? And also we're here to help you if you're struggling with these patients' symptoms or if like goals of care need to be addressed and you know it's harder than you thought it was gonna be or if there's a lot of distress, like just, just call us. And then I went down to the ED and I said, hey, I'm here, um, we're happy to help. Let us know if you feel like there's anything we can do. Here's our shortness of breath document and here's how you get in touch with me. And I felt like at that point, like kind of my nurse practitioner had started the month before I did, and then I showed up. And so it's kind of like, probably we just need people to know that we're here Mm -hmm. and then we'll figure out exactly how we can help them. Like once things come. So that's kind of what I did. And then everybody was super flexible. I mean, it was one of those things where because it was relatively unknown, we were all just trying to do the very best we could and everybody was willing to be collaborative because it was unknown. There were no egos in the way, not that there necessarily would have been, but there just wasn't that because this thing was unknown and we all were just trying to do the very best we could to survive it and help care for our patients. Yeah, I just felt like we were learning as we went along. Yeah. I mean, even from totally like on a prim- primary care standpoint too, 
you know, we weren't caring for patients directly in the hospital, but there was a lot of fear, a lot of questions out there. And so I felt like we did a lot of uh, just, you know, answering a lot of questions. And, and sadly, we didn't have a lot of answers. Yeah, we, right. we, we tried our best. And, you know, every day, it seemed like the science and the information was changing a little bit. And as healthcare providers, and as a primary care doctor, I found that really, really hard, because we're supposed to be the experts, right? Right. We're supposed to be the ones that are going to help the patients get through this. And you really feel vulnerable when you don't necessarily have that, that knowledge to share. Yeah, I think sometimes I just found myself saying multiple times a day, I don't know, but here's what I worry about. Yeah. And to get back to your kind of original question a, a few seconds ago, Natasha, one of the things that I was, that was really um, humbling to me and I so appreciated our ICU is all windowed. And so we kind of decided as a system and the intensivists were super supportive of this. You know, there are only two of you at that hospital. And my colleague was doing a lot of work for remotely just because that was what was best for her. So really in the hospital in the beginning it was mostly me. And I so appreciated how the system and the intensivists were kind of like, if you don't need to go in that room, don't go in that room. You can do a physical exam from the window. And we'd so much rather you be here tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. So if there are things that you can do to make sure that you don't get sick more than what we can do, then do those things. And so while there were, of course, rooms that I had to go into, if the patients were not decisional and they looked comfortable, I did not need to go into those rooms um, because there wasn't symptom management that I needed to do. And there weren't goals of care conversations that I was going to have with that patient. And so consequently, I could look and I could get a really good sense of how they were doing. All the numbers are there. I can see everything. I can see how they're breathing on the vent um, or on the BiPAP mask. You can get a good sense of that just by looking at the window. Mm -hmm. And then I could call the families and give that update without having to actually go in that room. Mm -hmm. And so that did reduce my risk pretty significantly. And I was super grateful for that because I wasn't unnecessarily risking my health and the health of our team. Mm -hmm. And therefore the care that we were going to provide to these patients the next week and the week after that, and kind of going forward. And the risk to your family, I would imagine. I mean, that's the other thing wow. too, is yeah. going home to your family every night after being in a hospital with, with COVID patients. I'm sure that was, that was scary on, you know, on lots of different levels too. It was, um, I think many more of my colleagues had to worry about that meant much more because of the number of rooms they had to yeah. go into and the, the amount of time they had to spend in each one of those rooms. I was fortunate. I usually was in at least one a day, but it wasn't 10. Yeah. I mean, you think about, you know, the nursing staff, I know they're, they're in there all they're day long, they're all day long. And yeah. You forget about how many people it, it takes to, to care for the, you know, the severely ill. Right. You know, along those lines, I know um, you're also a blogger and you've written some really nice pieces and Natasha and I have both gone through and, and um, you read some of your, your articles, but there was one that you just recently wrote that was uh, published on Kevin MD and it was called a plea for help from the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and so much of what you wrote resonated with me and I think also with um, Natasha. And there was a verse from your piece, you wrote, as a paleo care provider, 
I know that saving lives is not our only job. We are called to cure when possible, to heal what can be healed when cure is not possible, and to care always. However, this past year, it has often felt like the best outcome any of us can hope for is that families understand that we try. Then we are inevitably left wondering if we tried hard enough, a question that gnaws at us over and over again. This speaks a lot to, uh, I think we even mentioned this when we were talking previously, to some of the anguish um, and the difficulties that, that we've experienced as being healthcare providers living through this. Absolutely. After months of watching my intensivist colleagues and all of the nursing staff work so hard doing and doing and doing and doing for these patients and then have the same outcome, the same awful outcome over and over and over again. Um, I said in another place in that article, you're left wondering, did any of it matter? Mm. And if you start asking yourself that question and having this gnawing sense of another question, which is, did we do enough? So A, did we do enough? But B, did what we do matter? Mm -hmm. Those two questions in and of themselves are going to cause an extraordinary amount of anguish because all of us went into medicine to do, to, you know, to care, um, and, and not to wonder afterward if it was enough, if it, if it mattered, if it was important. We go to work each day feeling like the work that we do does matter. It has to matter um, because patients come to us really, really sick. And while we can't make them all better, usually we make many of them better. And so then if, if you're stuck in this situation where you're doing all the things that you know to do, and it feels like no one is getting better, then that's like a totally different mind shift that none of us were used to prior to this pandemic. Yeah, it's that yeah. moral injury that that you know that exactly. that's been kind of floating around the healthcare yeah. world, and, and um, you know how how difficult it is to reconcile. Right, especially early, early on. I mean, another good friend of mine is a, an ICU physician in New York City and she described first of all this harrowing experience of opening one ICU and filling it every day like Monday through Friday for for nine days in a row and so she had opened nine empty units and filled them with COVID patients and the other harrowing statistic from those early months that that you know the beginning of what you're talking about was that their fatality rate was something in the range of 90 percent mm. as a palliative care person you're you've you've been trained for years in working in this type of an environment where some people die and not all people die and you're used to since you're the specialist in how to care for people while dying, you're going to see even more people that are dying than most doctors do. And yet this situation was unprecedented for, for all of us, even people for whom caring for people who are dying is, is an everyday occurrence. It's like, 
what, what were some of the things kind of going through your mind or your heart or your body just physically as that that world of caring for dying people felt so different this year? Yeah, I mean, really exploded. I used to think of my patients as memorable moments. So you have these memorable interactions with patients or their family members that you take with you and you remember them and they feed you as these rewarding interactions or these, um, I like to call them these sacred moments where there's this really beautiful connection and you're able to really give a patient the care that they want um, and deserve. And usually, you know, in my years, uh, you know, so I graduated from fellowship in 2013. So in the seven years that I had been working as an attending, um, I have these beautiful moments that I take with me and I kind of tuck them away. And that's what keeps me going back to work each day. Right. Mm -hmm. But with COVID, we talk about that fire hose and, Mm -hmm. and it was the sheer volume. I still had those moments. I still had those memories each day, but instead of having one, or maybe if I was, or if it was a really great day, I had like two or maybe three, but I was having these really intense interactions via Zoom usually, um, you know, six and seven times a day. I think that's the part, as I look back at the year and a half, it's the sheer volume of these interactions that is so overwhelming. They're all memorable. Um, many of them were really beautiful and, and what I would call sacred moments. So those things that used to feed me, all of a sudden were like, there's too many. Now they're not feeding me anymore. It's too many. You're almost becoming numb in some way. Exactly. That's the thing. You don't even know what to do with it. Right. And so then, so then you're losing what feeds you Mm. and you have to keep, you have to keep going back and doing that same work. But it's just, it all, it becomes overwhelming because you don't have the part that feeds you. Um, it used to feed you and now there are just too many. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was also kind of really interesting for me to sort of think through and process a little bit. And maybe it's the adage of too much of a good thing, although that doesn't really fit because COVID was so awful. But too many of those really intense interactions was no longer a good thing. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of us started just to be, we have so much weight, you know, we're, we, so we're feeling this weight, but at the same time, we feel really empty. Yeah. At least that's sort of how I, I started to feel. And maybe it is, you know, I've never thought about it this way, you know, just like, you know, those, those, those sacred moments, those yeah. memorable moments that sort of keep us going with patient interactions and everything. And it just. Well, um, and it became, because it was the same illness it, over, yeah. and over and over again, it was also, I was saying the same words every single day. Yeah. Oh, and there, yeah. that almost felt cliched. Like, yeah. like I wasn't, was I really meaning what I was saying or, or cause, mm. cause I used to, you really mean it. Right. But then if you say it all day, every day after weeks and months of that, you start to wonder like these really careful, caring, gentle, um, compassionate statements. Do I feel them like I used to feel them? And if not, then it just feels really inauthentic. Um, yeah. And then you start to feel badly about that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. but I think it's interesting to think about what did that question, what did this do to my body? Because I think there's a lot of research out there that we in healthcare or, or just first responders for that matter, when you are seeing trauma after trauma, after trauma, yeah. um, you know, in the beginning, you can see it, you can witness it, you can process it. 
you can feel it in your body, but then you can kind of release it. But if you keep seeing it and experiencing it over and over and over again, there's no, there's not that time anymore. And so then for me, my body tenses up. That's, I mean, I think that's a pretty standard reaction, but that's certainly mine. I have had plantar fasciitis in my right foot, my driving foot for over two years now. And I have spent way too much money to try and get rid of this thing <laughs> um, and talk about like specialists and, you know, trying to, to do all of the things. And I have done all of the things and it was not even like an ounce better. It didn't matter. And then I began seeing a trauma therapist who works with somatization um, and sort of sensory work. And so I started seeing him probably about five, five weeks ago, six weeks ago. And I am now very subtly starting to see improvement. And I, I went to him on the recommendation of my social worker, actually, because she was like, you know, I think it's interesting that you've been working so hard to get this better. And despite all of the medical things, it's not getting better. Is it possible that this is trauma and related to COVID? Um, it sounds a little kind of woo woo, a little bit wacky. Um, but I think that there is a lot of truth to it. it doesn't sound wacky. Both no, 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 this is, no, you're, this is, we talk about this all the time. Just sort of I like, can't like explain it scientifically, except that, you know, there's a lot of good literature out there that this, this is a possibility. So I, I am super fascinated by the fact that now that I'm working on some of what I've experienced over the last year and a half, it's starting to loosen up again, because really that's what plantar fasciitis is at the end of the day, right? It's tightening. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that the entire right side of my body is tense, even now just like sitting here. And I wonder just how much of that is my inability to relax in between all of these really intense patient interactions. Yeah. I mean, the, the word intense has tense in it. <laughs> like, I think that that's maybe not just a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I mean, even describing it as an inability to relax feels very underrepresentative of what is actually probably happening in caregivers' bodies, because there's like that volume that you're talking about. I mean, I, I remember learning maybe a decade ago about how to deal with grief from the healthcare provider's own grief. And the advice that I found very profound, although kind of quiet and simple, was if it's your own grief, your own people, your own loved one, your own connection that was really important, you know, grieve. Like there's, there's nothing else that you can do besides go through that grieving process. And if it's someone else's grief, which in healthcare, quite often it is, we're still breathing in that grief, you know, next to another person. And then we hope to be able to breathe their their grief out. Like we don't have to do the processing for all people. As a as a person working around death all your life, you don't have to do the grieving for all of those lost people because that's really the family's grief. But some people will just stick with you and become your people that for some reason, perhaps that you couldn't have even anticipated that becomes something so much harder to, to lose. And I would imagine that 
you know, there's so much work that is required for any person to grieve. It's so physical. It so changes our, um, you know, our sleep-wake cycle. It so changes our appetite. It so changes our, you know, our mood on a day-to-day basis, our willingness to reach out to anybody else. And so if, if the fire hose is too open and you just can't breathe out everyone else. Well, and I don't even think, I'm not sure we're taught how to do that well in medicine. Yeah. It's expected that you are going to see a lot of trauma, but I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that I ever really learned how to release what I see. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. And I don't necessarily remember anything in medical school. Yeah. Um, Residency. I, you know, I think you're just, you just got blinders on. You're experiencing the trauma. Yeah. Yeah, but there's not really a whole lot of, you know, talk about, you know. Well, and so another example for me. So I I know from so I know from personal experience that my body does do this. Um, I just had forgotten. And so then it took it took a social worker the first time, it took a social worker this time. But when my grandmother died, she was 96 years old. The morning that she died, I woke up with spontaneous bilateral BPPV. I read that in your blog. Like that's crazy, right? Like, and even my, like, so nobody figured that I had it bilaterally. So they fixed the one side and let me go. And then I was still like three months later, I still had vertigo. And I just thought like, like it's either it's going to go away. And I kept doing the exercises or like, you know, I, I went to all the specialists, they couldn't figure anything out. So finally landed back at the audiologist to be like, just, can you help me? And realized that I had it on the other side. And my audiologist, she was just like, I legitimately have been doing this for 30 years and I've never seen somebody who gets it on both sides at the same moment in time. And I think that that I didn't realize it at the time, but I think when I was a, a baby and a child, she was very foundational to my upbringing and my sense of safety um, and mm. it was an incredibly nurturing mm. presence. And so mm-hmm. my body knew things that I, I did not know. And, um, and so then, you know, once the other side was fixed, I was, I was fine, but I, in the interim, in those three months that I still had the vertical on the one side, I went to a grief therapist who helped me again, because my social worker was like, maybe this is grief related. Um, and so I went to a social worker, helped me process some of this grief and, and get to back to a place where I could sort of tell my body, you're okay. Like yep. you have new roots. Now you have a new foundation. You can stand on your own two feet and you're going to be just fine. That my sort of infant body couldn't comprehend. So like, I think there are all kinds of fascinating things about that, about the human body like that, that that don't really make a whole lot of intellectual or, you know, um, I don't know, scientific sense to me, but Mm -hmm. still are real and are there. Um, And so I wasn't surprised when my social worker colleague was like, could this be trauma? Like, could we maybe explore that a little bit? And then of course, I think she's probably right. Like this is the first treatment that I've had where I'm back to running again and I haven't run in two years. So I think that there's some truth to what our bodies experience and we may not always know. Yeah, there's that book, The Body Keeps Score. Yeah. And I think that is so just- I, I, yeah, I, It's I mean, mind blowing. 
Yeah, you might enjoy it. Actually, I can't think of the word yeah. right now. But the concept just makes so much sense if you are willing to allow, you know, the headspace right. to think. Yeah. Right. If you can just go into it with like an open mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that in, in primary care, and we've talked about this before, Natasha, how a lot of what we manage in primary care, I mean, sometimes people will come to us with, you know, we manage their high blood pressure and their diabetes and their coughs and their colds and everything. But then there's a lot of times when people come to us with other symptoms that don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. And it's, and it's sort of our job, the detective work, to kind of dig a little bit deeper and right. see, you know, where is this coming from? And frequently there is, there's buried trauma, there's yeah. grief, yeah. there's anxiety, there's worry. And, you know, and just kind of bringing all this back to COVID, because I think that, you know, a lot of what we saw on the primary, you know, in the primary care realm was anxiety yeah, and, for sure. just, and just in managing this, you know, the, the intensity and the, you know, that, that people were experiencing trying to, you know, give them, you know, give them information, give them hope, give them support. But it was, it was hard because we were also going through the same type of <laughs> trauma ourselves, you know? Well, and I think oftentimes we as humans feel like the antidote to anxiety is to control our lives, to, to, to control as much of our lives as we can control. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. COVID felt like this completely, like there was no controlling it. The government couldn't control it. The world couldn't control it. We as individual humans within our own families couldn't control it. Like there was just, it was out of control. And yeah. I think that in and of itself caused a huge amount of anxiety. You're right. We saw a lot of that. And then when patients got it, you know, you've got the anxiety shortness of breath cycle, right? So then yes. it's like, oh, <laughs> like, we yeah, know everybody. Yeah, everybody was like, you either have COVID or you have anxiety. When we just see people, it's sort of, you know, it was, it was tough. And like, they kind of present the same way, sadly. Yeah. Um, that was pretty tough. But yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of what we at least a lot of what I tried to help patients understand is like, well, control what you can, because there is that sense of just feeling like everything you, you are to control and you just feel like everything yeah. is chaotic. I'm like, well, let's find some things you can control. Yeah. So you really had to kind of almost simplify how, you know, how, how we looked at, how yeah. we looked at life. I think it's got to be so different for us though, because I mean, we, we had plenty of COVID patients, but they were not mostly people who are suffering in the ICU. No, no. Our COVID experience, you know, I did have patients that did go to the hospital and go into the ICU, but the COVID patients that we were managing, I mean, thankfully we can manage them as an outpatient, and, but it was, it was, it was nerve wracking. Yes. Once a patient is intubated, their risk of mortality with COVID was over 80%. Um, and that really didn't change even when we were over a year into it. And so you have these patients who are on BiPAP who are super anxious and you're like, okay, mm -hmm. like we got to get your anxiety under control because otherwise you're going to get intubated and then your yeah. mortality mm -hmm. is going to go, you know, that much higher. And so the, the other way of looking at it is, well, if they're intubated, we can control their anxiety. So oftentimes we were sort of sitting here having, what's the best care right now? What's the best care? Can we treat their anxiety effectively enough that we don't have to intubate them or do we have to intubate them so they no longer suffer? And so that was sometimes a question that we had to ask ourselves too. It was really, it was super tough. There was so, I mean, there was just so much about this illness that required collaboration. Like we were talking about earlier, there was so much brainstorming and so much just 
kind of like, what's the best thing? What's the best thing? And all of us are kind of asking ourselves that and not really knowing what the answer is. It's not like these diseases with protocols, right? Right. And medically, the answer is different every week or every month. And yeah, it's a completely different way of, of trying medications, watching yeah. them feed or fail, readopting a new protocol, re-educating people, trying again. And, you, and you're never really working on a body of data that's guiding the way. Like we would never try things in the normal world without a whole body right. of data saying, this is how it's probably going to come out. And this was just like, really try to be creative and try as many things as you can, because you don't have any reference point for what's going to be actually a better outcome. There were almost seasons of COVID. My colleagues and I kind of talk about COVID one, two, and three. They were kind of like matching the surges. COVID one, we were all heroes, which um, I think you've heard me say, you know, I, I internally sort of fight against that because because we're not heroes. Like every one of us is still a human being. We don't have superpowers that are going to help us get over this or get through it. Yet I understand the premise and I understand kind of what everyone was going for. But I, I did worry that sometimes it might have created a culture where people felt like they couldn't ask for help. But that was kind of COVID-1. And then COVID-2 and COVID-3, kind of we became less heroes and more almost, I won't say the enemy, but we were the ones that were keeping them out of the hospital, the family members, right? Like we were the ones that wouldn't let the family members come in to see their loved ones. And we were the ones that were making their loved ones die alone. And there was a shift. And so I think that almost intensified the anguish and intensified the questions that we were asking ourselves at the end of every day. Is what we're doing, does it still matter if we can't let the families come in, if we're still making these patients die alone? is there something more that we could have done so that they didn't have to suffer as much or the families didn't have to suffer as much or we weren't dealing with so much anger? I mean, grief can come across as sadness, but it can also come across as anger. And so there was a shift between COVID-1 and COVID-2 and 3 where we saw, we still saw a ton of sadness, but we were seeing more anger. And that was also super hard because we weren't really doing anything necessarily different than we did during COVID-1. So we didn't change. And, and really even the situation didn't change, but everybody was just super tired of this whole, all of the limitations. Like the patients were tired yeah. and then the healthcare workers are just exhausted yeah. because they've been doing this for six months right. straight. I mean, I, I don't, many just didn't even take a break. I, I just listened to an interview with an, uh, a cardiac ICU nurse who didn't take a day off for six months. That's crazy. Because she was running a right. team. Yeah. And so you think about like kind of the moral distress or the moral injury. There was some at COVID-1, like absolutely for sure, 100%. But I wonder, was there more during COVID-2 and 3 um, because of what we were facing with the COVID fatigue on top of everything else? Well, what did you notice just starting a new process yourself in terms of working on trauma in a a new way, you know, something you've been around for a long time, but is, you know, like you're kind of in a new exploration of it yourself. Yeah. What, what are some of your thoughts about how we as a collective body of providers can establish even a few threads of that type of healing? Yeah. How do we make ourselves better? 
Well, or just make, doing it ourselves might not be the right word. I mean, I feel like that's the difficult burden on healthcare in pre-pandemic is that, you know, since everyone is coming to us, the healthcare providers, for the processing of very, very difficult experiences, then it makes, it always feels like it's kind of easy to put your own needs on hold because you're doing something that has true value, like altruistic value, not just for the sake of being altruistic, but for the sake of doing something good for another human being. And so it always feels important. It, you know, it doesn't feel like you can easily measure the value of your one hour workout compared to the value of talking with a person about a very significant life event for 45 minutes. And so because of that, I think it's just so easy for us to always uphold the value, the needs of yeah. other people that we're working with, because that's our right. work. So how do we not be like only heal, doing that healing ourselves? And Or what do you think after five weeks of trying? <laughs> and yourself, um, you know? So I, I could say, I don't know, but I worry, but I want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave yourself away. So I've said this before, having meaningful, purpose-filled work I think allows us to endure incredible hardship and grief and sacrifice. So we are resilient people, but I think when self-care becomes a checklist of things that I need to sandwich in to my already extraordinarily busy day, then it's not going to have the effect that it's intended to have. Mm -hmm. And so in the article that I wrote for Kevin MD, my argument in that article was we need time off to be able to heal from this fire hose of trauma. Our health systems across our country may want to give us that time off. They may see it as important as we see it, but financially that's not feasible in this country. We, we don't have enough providers and we don't have enough money um, to allow them to go away, whether they need to be paid during that time or not, because my article was really everybody from physicians to every other discipline that was helping to care for these patients. We all, every one of us experienced trauma and we need time away to process that. But if you can't get that time off, I mean, I think many of us are now starting to take vacations as we should to get some rest, but it's probably not as much as we need. Short of that, my answer really is, I don't know. Um, because I do believe that the best antidote to the trauma that we've experienced is time to process it in whatever way or ways our bodies and our minds and our souls need to process it. Um, and I think that that might look different for every person. But I do wonder if time is like the equalizer for all of us that we have in common. Yeah, I think this might take a long time. I mean, COVID hasn't left us. In some ways, I kind of worry. It's a little bit of my maybe trauma worry. This is always going to be a part. This is kind of our new. It, it's almost like this terrible, awful reminder of what you've been through that you can't ever get over. But not knowing exactly what the future holds, you're right. Like, as long as we have cases, we have trauma. So then what do you do with that? And I think it might just be a really, really long time. If, if all of these providers are willing to do the work, because it is work to get through this and process it, 
it's going to be a really long time. Well, that's something I'm reflecting on as you're saying, I think we all need time. And I really deeply appreciated the plea in your article. Like could, could anyone who's running any you know, business that can figure out how to be more supportive of people this year, can they take a leap to figure that out? Then to add to that, what you just said was, are the healthcare workers like willing or to take the risk to do the work it's really hard work to heal from trauma. It is. And not only willing, because I think anyone who wants to get better might think that they're willing, but not really know the way. No, that's a great point. And it's not always cheap. And that's the other piece to it. And I went to two other therapists before I found this one. But then I also think about all of the downstream effects. I mean, so I see generational trauma every day of my work life. And I have for the last, you know, ever since I graduated from fellowship. Are the downstream effects more expensive in the long run? I wonder. Yeah. Talk about that. What are some of the things you're witnessing? So when I worked in Asheville, North Carolina, I arrived there um, kind of right as the opiate epidemic was beginning to take off. So here I am in the heart of Appalachia. I got to a point where it felt like every month I was watching a two-year-old or a three-year-old say goodbye to his or her parent at the bedside as we were doing a compassionate extubation um, from an opiate overdose. And I kind of would think to myself, like what is gonna happen to this toddler, this small child who is witnessing this 20 years from now? Are they gonna be my patient as well with the same sorts of issues? It's actually part of why we became foster parents. Um, Not that we were gonna necessarily fix all of that, but I just felt like if I can help care for one of these small people, then at least it doesn't feel so awful to keep watching it and not be able to do anything about it. I just needed to feel like I was helping in some way. um, And I felt like standing at the bedside, continuing to watch it was not me helping. Kind of where I'm practicing now, there's a lot of racial trauma, generational racial trauma. And that makes being a white doctor difficult sometimes, not all the time. Fortunately, many of my patients, the vast majority, are filled with grace um, and so are willing to allow me to, to step my foot in the door. But there's, there is generational trauma there, and that comes with some medical distrust that can make my job more challenging sometimes. I do believe that generational trauma is real, and so I wonder what will this look like, this kind of trauma, 10 and 20 years from now? And how will our children, um, my children are very young, how will they remember what this was like for them? And what are they going to take away from it if I don't do the work? Yeah. And you have the ability to get help to do the work. Yeah. You know, I've never really thought of, um, you know, trauma in a generational way, but it it really, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, but in some ways it also offers Hope that maybe, like you were saying, like maybe there's something that you can do to intervene yeah. and, and change it yeah. a little because it's all, you, you always have that because, you know, after a trauma occurs, sometimes there's little you can do, but, but I think that that's a really powerful and hopeful sentiment to have. Even just like recognizing that generational trauma is a thing is maybe even just the first step because I feel like in the lay world, I mean, this is a relatively new concept to me. And I, I studied medicine, but I think it is becoming more accepted as a real thing 
to the rest of the world and is something to kind of be mindful of. You know, um, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris? No. She's a, a pediatrician in California who I think right now is, uh, I think California created a position for a new Surgeon General and she's the new California oh, wow. State Surgeon General. Okay. But she has done work for decades about the type of intergenerational trauma that creates medical outcomes that are very, very different from those who don't experience that. And she started really interviewing her patients for that, um, that type of history mm-hmm. and just recognizing that, that these patients were going to need a different way of addressing their care and, and helping to prevent their health outcomes yeah. because they've had these exposures to racial discrimination, to poverty, to homelessness, to um, sexual exposures, to um, violence, to AIDS. Um, And I noticed a lot of that when I was working in downtown DC myself, where at first I needed to learn to ask the questions because they weren't questions that I realized were you know, would have such a high prevalence of positive answers. And also, I'm not sure I really knew what to do with positive answers, but just to be able to ask people, you know, how many people in your family have experienced gun violence? Yeah. And realize that the numbers of positive responses, I mean, it was almost everyone. Right. But even if you think about like government or healthcare associated, um, like Henrietta Lacks is not far from us, right? That, and that was Baltimore. And right. so you have just even things like that, that were happening within the healthcare system that are putting large swaths of people at risk for distrusting the healthcare system. Absolutely. You know, I think I would say just one other thing that made COVID kind of different for us as hospital providers and, and just kind of in thinking about my intensivist colleagues and this speaks a little bit to the, the medical distrust piece as well. Typically, when I'm having goals of care conversations and I'm talking about code status, I'm really trying to figure out what does the patient or family want. My job is to make sure that they're as educated as they can be about these options so that they can determine kind of what makes the most sense for them. And sometimes it makes sense to share my thoughts about why something wouldn't be effective or you know, why something might be okay to consider for now, but down the road, you know, when you reach this point, wouldn't be effective. Obviously, when someone's nearing the end of their lives, and they're kind of at that point in their illness, or if they have like severe, I'm thinking of like severe aortic stenosis, it's kind of easy to talk about why chest compressions are ineffective, um, and why we're not going to be able to give you the outcome that you are thinking you're going to get from this intervention or hoping you're going to get from this intervention. So, you know, many of our patients would end up in the ICU, would end up intubated on the ventilator and they would die on the ventilator um, because of hypoxia. I mean, they just simply did not have enough oxygen to deliver uh, to their organs, no matter what the ventilator settings were. I mean, we were like, the intensivists were maximizing or, or optimizing, I should say, what it is that the ventilator was capable of doing to get these folks to actually gas exchange, oxygen in, CO2 out. And even despite that, 
Um, I mean, their PAO2s were in the 40s or the 30s mm. sometimes. Oh and they're on 100% oxygen. Like the ventilator can't give them any more oxygen and they are just not, it's just not going into their bloodstream from the, from the ventilator. So I would be having these conversations with families, you know, if they were relatively young, they could actually withstand that amount of hypoxia for several days. Um, and it would usually start out as some renal failure, and then it would progress to hepatic failure, and then it would progress to, um, you know, I mean, we rarely lightened the sedation because they required so much in order to remain comfortable on these max ventilator settings. Um, but then we would start to see hypotension, and then ultimately they would become asystolic. Their heart would stop beating. And it was for all of those patients where we all knew CPR was not going to change anything. They were dying from a lack of oxygen. You could do all the chest compressions in the world, but we were not going to be able to get them more oxygen. They're on the ventilator. Like the ventilator is doing all it can do and they're still dying. Mm -hmm. And that, that made COVID different as well because you're basically saying there is no reason to do this. Mm -hmm. In fact, all we're gonna do is cause harm, potential harm. We are definitely not going to add benefit, like de definitively not going to add benefit by doing this intervention. And we would still have family members say, we don't care, do it anyway. Yeah. So that was super hard because for me, it was hard because it was an indication of either the level of medical distrust that was there or the just deepest, most understandable, um, most appropriate desire to keep their loved one alive. And they on, the only way they, the only control that they still had over that was making sure that we did chest compressions. But for the intensivists, it was so hard because you are doing this intervention that could only cause harm. It will not cause benefit. Right. It's almost like it shouldn't be on the options. It shouldn't be on the options. But because of the level of medical distrust, we couldn't just take it off. Yeah. And that's, that was the real struggle. They knew that it was something that you do, that healthcare providers do at the end of life. So if we took it off, then they wouldn't believe that we did anything worthwhile or that we basically that we cared for them at all. And so that, that also was like just this additional source of distress and injury that probably in many cases, not all of them, but in many cases was related to medical distrust. And that repeating itself again and again. Over and over and over. When you look at um, the majority of you know people who got the sickest and ended up in the hospitals were people of color also. Right. I mean, we can talk about, you know, why, why that is. There's lots of reasons, um, but it's, so a lot of the patients you're probably treating were patients of color. Absolutely. Yeah, COVID. It was, it, and it continues to not be a, um, you know, uh, <laughs> a very uplifting right. um, time, and uh, you know what it's done to to our society and to us as people. I think, it, like you were, like we talked about, it's going to take it's going to take a long time to heal. And then also just a, a while to kind of figure out how COVID is, uh, unfortunately, like I, you know, it might be a part of us somehow moving forward too. And we're going to have to reconcile them somehow. Right. It's going to have to be weaved in amongst all of the other illnesses. It may no longer be 
the top, you know, I mean, let's hope, God willing. Um, it's not the, the majority of the patients that we see, but I do think you're right. It will be with us on some level. I just wanted to just reflect with you about, you know, what you had written, what Cecily read, which is that you and your team specifically are, are just left with this constant question of, you know, have we really tried hard enough? And given that, you know, 80% of people were dying on ventilators, it's so, so, so easy to understand how any healthcare provider would have that doubt because it's such, it's such an unheard of outcome. You know, it's an unheard of ratio of, of survival. Yeah. I keep thinking about the other aspect of what you said, which is that what we really do is always care. Yeah. And that in a time when we can't fix anything and when maybe everything goes wrong, clearly, clearly, clearly you so deeply care. And it, it makes me just want to go, you know, sit next to you on the couch for a while and, you know, kind of be in that moment of, you know, really caring about your patients and, um, and that just that there's value in that. Like, I think I always think about it as we, you know, good healthcare starts with simply caring about the patient, but that's not enough because you have to be effective. You can't just care. Right. right you know, right. And people come back to us because we're effective, because we have good outcomes, because we help to make them better than they would be without us. And I've done that inpatient hospital work a little tiny bit and, and just witnessed people dying sometimes in a, in a way that felt whole. And I, I believe by talking to you just for this brief introduction that you're presence there made people more whole as they were dying. Um, and so, you know, in, in that way, you're effective. You're, you're caring about the patient. You're providing a better outcome, even as someone is dying from something that's uncontrollably difficult. Mm, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's that, it's that art of medicine that we were talking about, right? But I think that we're also, you know, as doctors, sometimes our own worst critics, you know, we always have to, we're perfectionists. Absolutely. You know, I yeah, you know, and so, so sometimes we just, you know, we, that's just kind of our, kind of our nature to go back and say, well, what, what, what else could we have done? We do need some victories every once in a while. However, however we define victory to make it <laughs> worth our while to keep going back and leaving these small children we adore who are, you know, mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. Very, very true. Thank you so much for um, being with us here today. Um, it's really an honor and a pleasure having you um, share your insight and, and your thoughts. Thank you so much for this time. This is really wonderful. I so enjoyed meeting both of you. Thanks so much to Dr. Kristen Forner for joining us on this episode of Living Breathing Medicine. You can find links to her blog and other podcast references in the show notes. And thanks to you for listening. Living Breathing Medicine is a podcast from Dr. Natasha Beauvais and Dr. Cecily Havert, two family physicians exploring compassion and humanity in medicine. Our producer is Melody Roll, and our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and other social media handles, which are also found in our show notes and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
Find us back here in two weeks when we talk to Dr. Ken Zweig, our close friend and colleague at Northern Virginia Family Practice, about difficult conversations with our patients who are suffering. Until then, be well and take good care.